This is John Burlingame, and welcome to For Scores. In this podcast series, we're taking listeners on a magical journey into the world of film and television composers. Each episode, we'll go behind the curtain and speak with some of the most accomplished and iconic composers of our time. Until now, they've never had the opportunity to reveal to fans the special moments, the challenges, the emotional journeys of the music. All of that which truly transports us into another place, another world, another time. In this episode, we're speaking with the incredibly talented and prolific composer Alan Silvestri. He's composed the music for some of the most well-known movies of the last several decades, including Back to the Future and Forrest Gump, as well as the Marvel Cinematic Universe films Captain America, The First Avenger, The Avengers, Avengers Infinity War, and most recently, Avengers Endgame. I sat down with Alan in Los Angeles to talk about his work, his process, the sheer scale of Avengers Endgame, and how he approached that project and its challenges. So you've done the last two Avengers movies, Infinity War and Endgame. Um, and of course, these now are wrapping up the stories from 21 prior Marvel films. Talk, if you can, in general, about the kind of dramatic challenges this posed for you as a composer. Dramatic challenges. Um, well, in the very first meeting with uh, Joe uh, and Anthony Russo. The directors. The directors. Um, they were very clear about wanting a tremendous level of scale in the film, musically. They wanted something just really big and powerful. They even used the word operatic in their um, vision of it all. That's kind of where I went with it all. Fortunately, it's how they shot their films. I mean, these things are bigger than life. Characters are, are these archetypes bigger than life and so you could really go there musically let alone the you know the the panoramas and the and the scope of shots that they brought i remember walking down a hallway in one of our early meetings and the they were showing me concept art on the wall and these were just single framed pieces of art the surface of this planet and the panorama shot of this view of the universe and all. And I remember thinking, wow, the scope, I've never quite seen it like this. So that was fun to, to have that kind of visual palette. So the, the imagery actually, it really is inspirational to you as a composer? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you don't always get it. And this is a case where something like this concept art is really important. Is that because the special effects are coming in later and Absolutely. you have to write your music earlier? Absolutely. Very often, you know, you're seeing that um, until very late in the end game in certain places. There was just such a vast amount that the visual effects people had to do. Um, and you can't wait. So ultimately, it all has to come through your imagination. But certainly, the more you can see, the sooner, the better. These movies, especially Endgame, deal with these vast um, 
sort of literary themes, the idea of life and death on an unbelievably grand scale. Mm-hmm. How do you wrap your head about that and, and translate into something that will speak to us musically? Well, as grand as the themes are, they're still coming through characters and the characters' experience in these grand narratives. And that, I think, is the, is the point of contact for all of us as an audience and for the storytellers. Themes are, in a sense, for me at least, kind of conceptual. They're things we kind of can formulate in our mind. But how we feel when a loved one dies or how we feel when we lose our love uh, relationship. We all know what these things are like, and I think you really don't want to get lost in, in too much thinking and, and stay with the experience of these characters as they go through all of these um, amazing stories. Your own Avengers theme recurs at a couple mm-hmm. of pretty important moments in the film. Um, you actually wrote that, I think, seven years ago for the first Avengers right, film. Right, that's right. Um, people will be humming that as they leave the theater. They probably are humming it as we speak, as we're talking about it. Do you remember how you came up with that? Kind of. <laughs> uh, it was before we really got into the, the, the full-on work for the film and I was asked to develop some themes in a very kind of nice non-pressure way it's just like hey Al you know could you could you you know think about some ideas you know for this and uh, and send them along and you know just so we can start you know when when the the broad strokes of Avengers the original Avengers um, were looked at by me from the musical point of view I knew it had to be heroic. Um, I, I knew it had to, in a sense, be very simple because I think all powerful themes um, are ultimately simple. It allows it to travel through the film in all kinds of ways orchestrationally. It can be used in very quiet moments. It can be used in bombastic moments. It can be played by a solo instrument. An oboe can play the theme from the Avengers. And we all get it. It can play against an image. I look for a place in the film where I know um, whatever it is I come up with, it has to work here in its most blatant, raw form. And the place in the Avengers that I went to, ultimately, was that big shot when they're in the town, they're in the city, midst of crazy battle. It's been going on and on and on, and, and Banner, you know, comes back from his little visit to Jersey, and he, he's joining, you know, the gang. And it's, it's incredible because here are the Avengers, shoulder to shoulder, in the midst of this great battle. Nobody's moving. Nobody's doing anything. It's, in a sense, a posed shot. 
but it is the iconic Marvel shot of the Avengers. The camera was moving, but it was basically a static shot in the middle of a battle scene. And that was the place um, where we could just play it. Uh, and, and we did. That's a thrilling moment. It is. It's, it just, it's kind of, for the fans who know the Avengers, it just says, here they are. <laughs> now you're going to see, as Doc would say, something serious. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, I was curious watching Endgame. There are brief and I think kind of subtle allusions to some of the other character mm-hmm. themes mm-hmm. written by, in fact, other people right. along the way. Right. How often did you need to do that and why? We didn't do it often, but we did it. That being said, um, again, early on, we had a very kind of interesting dialogue about themes in general for both uh, Infinity War and Endgame. We talked about the number of ways this could go. You could have leitmotifs for every character and, and... that would have been one thing in Infinity War. In Endgame, <laughs> it would have been it would have been completely insane. Because at once, on one point or another, practically yeah. everybody is back. Exactly, exactly. So, what we came to by this kind of you know ongoing dialogue and thought process was, hold on, that is probably not what music should be helping with and especially in Endgame. And in fact, it should be doing the opposite. It should be looking for ways to unify uh, and, and hold all of this together rather than piecing it out. You know, it was already the great challenge for the storytellers to have this feel like a story, a film, um, with some cohesion. And, uh, and, and interestingly, in... Uh, in Infinity War, you know, Thanos was the bad man. And so we were all comfortable with Thanos having his theme. And he was also the team to beat and still the bad man <laughs> in Endgame. So we felt, again, very comfortable carrying his theme forward. So talk about writing the Thanos theme. What did it need to say or sound like? I remember kind of working through the thought process of that. So what did he need? It needed to be very dark. It needed to be ominous. For me, when a bad guy walks towards you, it's a lot scarier than if he's running towards you. (laughs) And it seems the slower he or she walks, the more terrifying it is because the real bad ones 
kind of have all the time in the world. And actually, it's part of the fun for them, is that they're going to make you wait. Um, so there was a very kind of s- slow-moving um, current to it. I was doing that with the brass primarily in the Thanos theme. On the other hand, um, as is very often the case with Marvel characters, and I think it's a great part of their success, is they never let their bad guys be two-dimensional comic book bad guys. They're very multi-dimensional beings, complicated, usually very smart, which makes them, again, scary. Red Skull, scary. So after I set up this low brass darkness, all of the brass instruments in their lowest registers, I started with this almost lyrical string line in the lower strings, cellos primarily. And in in a sense, I was thinking of it as a very kind of passionate um, part of Thanos' theme. Then at some point, I bring violins in with another kind of high, sustained, yet slightly moving line. And so all three of these things are happening simultaneously until there's a change in that theme which we used some of when he meets Gamora as a child in Infinity War, and then it's very kind of operatic um, and bigger than life as, as Thanos was. So that's kind of where all that came from. I mean, he, he was a very complicated character. And it's a great illustration of what music can do to help the storytellers realize a kind of final version as you say, it's kind of three-dimensional, mm-hmm. not a two-dimensional, he is the bad guy. Right, There's right. something more to him. Right. So do you go through this kind of, of process when you sit down to begin your sort of conceptualizing of themes on, on a film like this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm being a lot more wordy about it um, at the moment um, because we're not playing music. Um, but... When we're playing music, now it's really about how this feels. And uh, so uh, they kind of go together um, psychologically, how it, you know, how you can put words to it, but how it feels musically when I go from this to this. It's a language for me. and. When it's right, I can feel that it's right. And until it feels right, I'm not finished. So then the process for you is sort of as much emotional as it is intellectual. Completely. Oh, it's completely emotional. Um, I was talking to somebody about this recently. Um, I've only come recently to... um, think about all this. It's probably after a conversation with you, Mr. Rowling Game, where it's like, you know, Al, how did, how did you, oh, I really don't know. But what I've come to discover with it all is great empathy for actors. I have to go there, as they say, 
I have to go into this and and navigate through my feelings. So for instance, if I'm doing a scene where the intent of the filmmakers is that the audience is sobbing at the end of this. If I'm not sobbing while I'm working on this, there is no compass for me. There's no other measure for whether I'm accomplishing the task or not other than the reaction that the storytellers are hoping to evoke in their audience. I'm my own test dummy. I'm my own, you know, experiment, you know, in real time. Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Alan Silvestri's scores for Marvel Studios' Avengers Endgame, Avengers Infinity War, and Captain America the First Avenger. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the soundtracks you love whenever you want. How do you know what the intention of the filmmakers are? Do you guys sit down and talk at length about what each scene needs to have? I would say yes, except for the at length part. It could be a word or two. And along with this is naturally how much more wonderful it is to work on a well-made film. Because a well-made film doesn't require a lot of talking at length. I mean, if you don't know what the scene means from watching the scene, we've got a problem now. <laughs> that is not the case with the Russo brothers. A lot of what we talked about were things that they were not able to show me yet. In a sequence, for instance, they would say, so, so here, Al, we've come to this point. We're not going to have effects shots on this for another month and a half. So we want you to know where we're headed with this and what this is so you can begin to think about it. And then they would, in great detail, be able to describe what is to come. Now, it's a three-hour film. Mm -hmm. How much music is there in Endgame? When it was over, we had recorded over 200 minutes of music. That's well over three hours of music. Right. And I wrote well over 200 minutes of music because there were things that I sent to the filmmakers throughout the whole process where they would say, um, we don't know, maybe it needs to be more like this. And that would be, in some cases, an entire thematic piece of material that's never been revisited again. So you needed to actually sort of rework the piece. Or, or in many instances, you know, the smart thing is start over. You know, don't try to save um, a bad idea. When did you start on Endgame? Was principal photography completed or were you actually starting to write music even maybe during shooting? 
It's a very blurred line. It seems like forever is the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> Did you start right after you finished Infinity War? Basically, yes, in a sense. I went down to see, uh, to visit the filmmakers um, while they were shooting Infinity War. But they were already shooting um, Endgame because they were shooting both. Um, and I, I don't know exactly how that schedule worked, but I remember being down there and Endgame was alive in the midst of Infinity War, so... So did you visit the sets? Yes. How often do you do that, and is that inspirational? It is, um, I think the greatest benefit to doing it is not getting inspiration from a soundstage or folks saying, you know, action and cut and then, you know, actors walking off in their costumes and having a ham sandwich. <laughs> it's really about visits with the directors and being part of the enthusiasm. We talked earlier uh, about the fact that the score needed to be big. Right. So... Does that mean automatically a big orchestra? And if so, how big? In our case, um, big meant big. <laughs> and I think we were somewhere in the range of 95 musicians. And this was recorded where? At Abbey Road in London. And it's a, it's a great room, um, acoustically. And in this sense, they clearly wanted an orchestral score. Um, that was very clear. It was a very direct direction. Um, so now you're talking about bodies in a room and, um, you know, individuals moving air, either by a string vibrating on a violin or somebody blowing through a uh, a pipe, or a piece of wood, or hitting a skin stretched over a bowl, or whatever it is, you think of it, you know, on an individual basis, they are moving air. And there's something about a size in that acoustic environment that actually matters. And this was one of those cases. And now you take all of these people in a concerted way, moving air at the same time, and you have this tremendous possibility for a sense of power and, and just physical power. Um, then you start to add um, movements of things that could have an emotional context, and now it's powerful. In a, in a completely different way, so. And it's so exciting to be in a room when 95 people are playing together. It's unbelievable. These masters of their art, um, these individual players, get there immediately. Uh, there was a comment by someone in the room. Uh, it was a kind of a question of amazement. It's like, have they really never seen any of this before? <laughs> And yes, 
They have never seen any of this before. Speaking of it, we're talking now about the musicians who have never looked at this particular right. piece of music exactly. in their lives. Exactly. And they play it brilliantly the first time out. Absolutely. We record the rundown, which is the word we use to describe the first time we read through one of, it could be 150 or however many separate pieces of music, that original sight-reading rundown, we always record. Because it might be good. It, well, or parts of it might be good. Parts of it might be played in a way that you'll never get after rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. Because again, it's a very physical process, especially in a film like this. For, for instance, trumpet players, especially it can be physically demanding. They're playing loud, they're playing high on these instruments. It takes a tremendous physical toll. And so it's kind of like harvesting in a sense. There's a sweet spot um, in the process where they know the piece well enough to be spontaneous with it, but they haven't done it so many times that it becomes stale or they're physically spent. And so you have to really always be aware of that when you're working with great players. Um, when is it time? And when has the time passed? Because you just are not going to get the energy and the performance. It's, it's the window has closed. Do you conduct your own scores? I do. Um, in this case, I conducted the first round, which was four days, I believe, and then the remaining sessions were done by Mark Graham, and I worked remotely um, with the orchestra. It's an interesting possibility with the level of technology we now have. So when you talk about remotely, then Mark Graham was conducting the orchestra in Correct. Abbey Road. Correct. While you were here in America, right. monitoring the sound? Right, with the filmmakers. And why was that necessary, by the way? Well, you know, process, uh, and again, this is really, I would say, effects-driven, was that the writing was going on. I think we did our last session maybe 10 days or so before the answer print. An answer print? Yeah, there is in, in this process at the end of the making of a film called the dubbing process. And that's where all of the sound for the entire film is brought together. It's a block long mixing board like people will see in a recording studio. And all of the dialogue, all of the sound effects, all the music are then blended together um, for the entire film. It's usually done on a reel-by-reel -reel basis. The answer print is the final mix of the entire film that can then be played for the filmmakers for their approval of the sound. And also of usually their visual effects. So that is the last chance, last chance print uh, of the film to make any kinds of changes to anything. And after that has been signed off on, then they very quickly go into the process of actually printing their prints. So it's a very important um, marker in the life cycle of the film. It is now the film. 
and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal. <laughs> One more question about the ebb and flow of music in a film. There's a lot of music in Endgame. Is there a kind of architecture to the score whereby you know that at some point you have to be intense and at some point maybe not so intense and at some points emotional and maybe at some points more neutral in tone? Do those issues come up when you're writing? They do. They do. Um, you know, the scene is is the um, is the puzzle piece, and so when you're painting, you're painting that puzzle piece. But you most certainly have to have an awareness. And let's use a jigsaw puzzle as the example. You certainly have to know what the picture is, but you're gonna have to make this piece work on its level because you're dealing with the arc, for instance, of a piece of narrative. There's a reason that is a scene, and there's a reason that scene begins and ends. So there is a whole life cycle there. And then, of course, there's the larger life cycle of the film, and that has to be absolutely considered in terms of, as you say, the intensity of the music, what's going to be appropriate, and a lot of that requires a kind of imagination because you don't always have the benefit of seeing this larger perspective. Obviously, Marvel movies are only a part of your career. You've been doing movies since the 70s. Right. Why is that? What is it about putting music to imagery that somehow has captured your fancy? Well, um, I never, I, I didn't come into this wanting to do it. It was something that happened. It was an opportunity that appeared by a very kind of funny, you know, very funny, quirky circumstances. And I got to write music for a film and record it and see it put into the film and see the film. And my first meeting with a producer um, was after spending the night reading Earl Hagen's book about how to score films. Thank God <laughs> Mr. Hagen wrote that. <laughs> Because my, that following morning, I had to go into one of those little screening rooms by myself with a projectionist and sit and watch a, a movie with no music in it, unfinished movie, and then sit in a meeting with a producer. Okay, so what are you going to do? And what I wound up doing was I didn't stop talking. I just kept yapping away. <laughs> And he'd say, well, what are you going to do here, kid? And I'd just yap away. I had so many ideas about what I was going to do. And so to get back to your question, I somehow like the storytelling aspect of film. And I happen to be a music person. And I have ideas about how to help the storyteller tell the story. And I literally hear music when I see a piece of film. And I don't always hear it clearly, 
but I very quickly, sitting in front of film for the first time, started to have a sense of tonal color, sense of rhythm, a sense of, uh, a sense of sensibility, and I just start to do it. After all these years, the process has not changed at all. Really? It's exactly the same. I'm terrified because I don't really know how that happens. I still don't. So there's still some mystery to that? Oh, it's horrible. It's not, <laughs> it's not some mystery. It's terrifyingly <laughs> mysterious. Every time, I don't know how I'm, and my wife just rolls her eyes like, oh, are you really gonna do this again? <laughs> not do the movie, go through these kind of, you know, this self-doubt and this anxiety. And I, I do. I've tried to, you know, analyze it. It's, it's senseless. I'm just going to be a mess. And <laughs> for six to eight weeks. Yeah, for whatever it is, you know, when it gets better, you know, as it goes along, it's just what it is because I really don't know how that happens. I don't know why I hear something and I don't have any strategy. And, you know, the nice thing about now having done this for whatever, 45 years, is at least I know when, when the, these voices start to appear, at least I know that I can say, hey, we've done this before, okay? We've done this before a lot. It's somehow, it works, okay? So just everybody hold on, let's just go in, you know? And, and I, actually, what I do now is I have a cup of coffee and walk in the room and I know that I'm going to sit in that room for whatever, eight hours. And that's the only part I have to worry about. I just have to go, go to the room. And the other, that other thing, I mean, I'm starting to sound like the Hulk, you know, <laughs> and that other guy shows up sometimes. <laughs> you know, that, and that is literally my experience. There are times the other guy doesn't show up, and that's not a good day. <laughs> so you mentioned Back to the Future, which, of course, is one of your iconic scores. And I also think of another Zemeckis picture, Forrest Gump, mm -hmm. as a, a film that I think most people know and maybe even can um, hum that fabulous theme that you wrote. Mm -hmm. Do people still talk to you about these experiences? I think people do remember those movies and those scores. Oh, absolutely. Those are those two films in particular um, uh, were amazing kind of cultural events, if you will. Um, Back to the Future, um, of course, now has had this new life form in, in the concert, Back to the Future in concert world. and Where they actually play the music live to the film. Live to the film. We show the entire film front to back, but all of the music uh, the orchestra plays is live on stage in the concert hall, and it's a fantastic night out. And, and it's pure Back to the Future. Um, we've yet to do that with Forrest Gump. That might be out there at some point. Oh, that's great. Um, and another whole generation will get to experience it in a new way. Exactly. And, and it's, it's when you mention Gump and Back to the Future and people talking about it, I have had people come up, um, and, and very often it's in this 
concert, Back to the Future in concert environment because people are coming to see this and I'm there sometimes. And they'll come up with their seven-year-old daughter or son and, and say, this is their favorite movie. They've seen it 30 times already. And they're young kids and they're discovering Back to the Future. Um, so it's, it lives in real time and it's amazing to see a film do that. No one can predict that. Right, that's extraordinary. You wouldn't possibly have imagined that in 1985. Absolutely, you can't. You wouldn't dare. <laughs> <laughs> well, Al, congratulations on Avengers Endgame. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Four Scores. Please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you think. Leave us a review and tune in for the rest of the season. We're talking to so many incredible composers, you won't want to miss a single episode. Watch the Avengers Infinity War and the Avengers Endgame. And listen to the soundtracks wherever movies and music are enjoyed. Four Scores is brought to you by Disney Music Emporium the ultimate online destination for all things collectible and limited edition from the legendary Disney Music Catalog. Disney Music Emporium is the place to go for exclusive music collectibles including vinyl picture discs, limited edition posters, and framed art from over 80 years of classic Disney music. Plus, the latest vinyl albums from Disney, Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilm soundtracks Discover more. Go to DisneyMusicEmporium.com.